Welcome to Rebelcast. This is a special edition with your host, Andy Little. I know you guys are used to hearing Salim Rezai's voice, but he is busy, busy, busy running his conference here at Rebellion 2019. And this is going to be the audio recap for day two. Now, day one was a bunch of workshops, an AM and PM point of care ultrasound workshop, a simulation workshop, an EKG workshop, and a phenomenal procedures cadaver workshop. But this will serve as an audio recap for day two, which is the first full day with a whole line of top-notch, high-quality speakers. And so for the next few minutes, you'll hear some of their information that they gave over the day, quick hits from their talks, why they love coming to Rebel EM, and some other cute, fun banter, I'm sure. So listen up, and thanks so much for letting me sit in for Sal today. My name is Chris Hicks. Uh, my talk today at uh, Rebellion 19 was on ROTEM or uh, viscoelastic assays in trauma resuscitation. The three big takeaways from my talk are, number one, trauma coagulopathy affects one quarter of severely injured trauma patients, and that confers a four times bump in mortality uh, compared to patients that don't have that coagulopathy. And there's no good way to see that without viscoelastic assays like TEG or ROTEM to guide you. Point number two is that trauma coagulopathy isn't one thing, it's a series of things. It's not just hyperfibrinolysis, it might be factor consumption, it might be a fibrinogen deficit, and again, there's no real way to distinguish which you're dealing with uh, unless you have point-of-care testing that can help you uh, clarify things for you and then tailor the resuscitation for what your patient actually needs. And that's in contradistinction to a ratio-based resuscitation, which is a great place to start, but doesn't necessarily give you information on what your specific patient is missing and what they need in response. And so finally, tests like TAG and ROTAM give you that information. They give you the information on the specific nature of the coagulopathy, and they help tailor the response so that if your patient has a fibrinogen deficit, you can f respond with cryoprecipitate. So if they have factor consumption, you can respond with FFP and so on. Uh, and that really helps you focus your resuscitation to your patient's specific needs. Hey, this is Haney Malamat. My talk today was whether or not we should be using epinephrine for patients in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So here are the three big takeaways from my talk. The Paramedic 2 trial showed that one milligram of epi was harmful to our patients in terms of neurologic outcome. However, I don't know if we're ready to throw epinephrine away just yet. There may still be a role for epinephrine if we use lower doses. The other thing we're not sure about is the timing of the epinephrine that we give patients. And finally, maybe all types of PA arrest shouldn't be bundled into one big basket of arrest, and maybe there are different phenotypes where people will benefit from epinephrine and other types where people will not benefit from epinephrine. The only way to really discern this right now is to use ultrasound and place an arterial line and ensure that you're targeting your diastolic blood pressure with your epinephrine during your resuscitation. Hello, my name is George Willis. So I had to talk today on steroids and sepsis. My big take-home points for today were the following. One, if you look at the majority of the studies that look at sepsis and steroid use, there's some that have inherent flaws, but for the most part, they all have kind of the same overarching theme in that one, 
there is no mortality benefit. We have found in numerous studies that even with the approaches trial, which was the only one that really conferred a true mortality benefit, was pretty inherently flawed. And the fact that it was trending towards going back to the mean, which is what we have found in most of the other steroid studies as well. So there is no mortality benefit. However, when the second big take-home point is that if you look at patient-centered outcomes, if you look at reversal of shock, if you look at time in the ICU, ventilator-free days, pressor-free days, you'll find that steroids did show an improved benefit in those circumstances. And so my third big take-home point was that we don't need to use this on everybody. We should use this in patients who we may be getting ready to start that second presser on, which is what my practice is. We've maxed out our first presser. They're still hypotensive. We're getting ready to think about that second presser. Is steroids something that we should be thinking about? And my inherent answer is yes. At this point in time, if you're starting to think about a second presser, stress dose steroids should probably be the next thing you throw at the patient. We haven't really shown any robust evidence that there's a mortality benefit, but in terms of, again, reversal of shock, ventilator-free days, vasopressor-free days, steroids have been shown to be beneficial. So I will give steroids in that circumstance. Hi, this is Rob Bryant. My talk today was three changes to the way I intubate. My three takeaways from my talk are effectively my three changes. I will commit to always having the head of the bed elevated throughout the pre-oxygenation and intubation phase and ideally leave the patient in that position for their chest x-ray and when they're on the vent. I will use a bougie as part of my first look with video laryngoscopy, and I try to be less of a dick than I was when I first finished residency and incorporate team factors management and good communication during my resuscitations. Hi, uh, this is Chris Hicks. My second talk today was on pre-hospital airway management. And my three big takeaways from the talk are, one, I think by far the more important factor in pre-hospital airway management is the skill of the provider and their familiarity with the airway technique that they're using. It's not necessarily about do you intubate versus do you not intubate, and it's certainly not about professional designation. I, I think it matters very little if you're a paramedic, a physician, a nurse. It matters much more what your skill and familiarity is with whatever technique it is you happen to choose. Second point relates to resuscitation logistics and what my friend Andrew Petrosonia calls resuscitation economics, which is when you're picking a strategy for airway management, Regardless of the environment, if you're doing one thing in a recess, you by definition can't be doing something else. So what is the opportunity cost of spending time on, say, advanced airway management like intubation uh, compared to, say, uh, uh, focusing on defibrillation or transport to hospital in a hypotensive trauma patient? And some of the literature actually bears that out, suggesting that there might be a deleterious opportunity cost in focusing on intubation at the expense of other things. And then the third point relates to some of the recent literature that came out in this past year. Uh, the Airways 2 trial uh, looked at uh, uh, survival to hospital discharge intact at 30 days um, using a second-generation superglottic device versus um, intubation as the primary airway approach. The bottom line in that study was there was essentially no difference between the two. And then in that same issue of JAMA, 
The PART study came out, the Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial, focusing more on mortality at 72 hours, looking at a laryngeal tube as the initial strategy uh, compared to intubation as an, as an initial strategy. I think that's interesting because they were looking more at strategies rather than particular techniques. And in that study, a strategy that focused on a laryngeal tube first seemed to confer a small but significant mortality benefit at 72 hours. So it's all, in my mind, about the opportunity, cost, and economics of your resuscitation. Less so about the specific technique, and more importantly, about putting the right tools in the hands of the right provider who's familiar with the tool that they're using in a given circumstance. Hello, this is Ashley Liebig. My talk today was about vascular access. The three big takeaways from my talk are that size matters, both length and diameter, that we should consider the best conditions for our patient and the most appropriate access for them, and that the IO is safe, effective, and fast. Hello, this is Patrick Bafuma, and my talk today was on major delays to the second dose of antibiotics. The big takeaways from my talk are as follows. Major delays to the second dose of antibiotics, which is defined as greater than a 25% delay, are associated with increased mortality, especially in the sickest of the sick. So what can we do to overcome this? One is pay attention to the borders. Don't put them off in the corner. Pay attention to when they are due for their next dose. And one of the ways around that is to either set a timer or talk to your IT people or your EMR and build in a automatic second dose so that you know that they are not missing their next couple of doses. One additional thing you can do is you can do a bolus plus continuous infusion. Now, this is going to require a little bit of fancy footwork around your P&T committee and also your ICU groups. With that said, bolus plus continuous infusions have been shown to decrease mortality in patients with Apache 2 score is roughly 20 or above. Uh, so this is a really easy way to get around having to order additional doses and to, in, to improve mortality in the sickest of your sick. Hello, my name is Ashley Liebig. My talk today was about arterial line pressure monitoring. The three big takeaways from my talk are troubleshooting from the patient site, checking patency, position, and pressure. Number two was zeroing at phlebostatic access each shift and then also when the patient is moved. And three, knowing what waveforms uh, mean, both under-dampened and over-dampened. My second talk today was on hyperoxia and the critically ill. We oftentimes in emergency medicine look at the oxygen saturation, and if it doesn't say 100%, we think we failed the patient. But we're especially like that with our critically ill patients. So we see someone who's having a stroke or we have a myocardial infarction and we think, oh, we need to give this person as much oxygen as we possibly can to perfuse the ischemic part of either their brain or their heart or whatever ischemia that they're going through. We all know that hypoxia is bad, but is hyperoxia actually helpful? And so a big take-home point is there have been a couple of studies that have looked at hyperoxia or even supplemental oxygen in patients who have had true ischemia, diagnosis of a stroke, diagnosis of myocardial infarction. And in those studies, they found that there was no improved benefits in either of those circumstances with supplemental oxygen. So if a patient is normoxic, put your hands in your pocket, slowly back away from the patient. 
Big take home point number two is too much oxygen harmful. So there's two studies that came out. One was the ICU oxygen trial, and it looked at patients who were in an ICU and if they received a liberal oxygen or if they received a conservative oxygen. And what they found in that study is that the people who received too much oxygen, that liberal oxygen group, actually had recurrence of shock. They had increased incidence of new bacteremia, and those are certainly bad outcomes. But the big one, which was the fact that their mortality was increased if they had liberal oxygen. And then the IOTA trial, which came out in 2018, looked at other RCTs between liberal and continuous oxygen. And again, there was confirmation of increased mortality with liberal oxygen. So big take-home point number three, normoxia is good, hypoxia is worse, but hyperoxia is not good either. So hyperoxia is bad. Putting a patient at 100% other than if you're getting ready to intubate, if you're treating a pneumothorax, things like that, but certainly not in every and all comers. Hey, so this is uh, Scott Weeders, and my talk today was on So You Can't and You Don't and You Won't Stop. And that's point of care ultrasound and CPR and how to avoid some harmful pauses. Uh, we know that the ultrasound is a powerful tool to be used in CPR, and we love ultrasound, but we also know that ultrasound, among other tools, when used poorly, can cause problems. Literature will show that there are significant pauses added when ultrasound is incorporated into a code. And so we took that information and then tried to find an organized approach to reduce the pauses. So the key points on ways to reduce those pauses are going to be counting down and making sure that ultrasonographers and pulse checkers are in place before the pause, making sure that your team is limited to less than 10 seconds of obtaining the ultrasound by using a countdown with your compressor, and then not reviewing the ultrasound while you're doing it, but taking the time to review the ultrasound after the pause is complete to then spend your time doing your interpretation. So we hope that these changes will be uh, meaningful. And the future is hopefully using transesophageal echo. And that would hopefully further reduce pauses as has been shown in one recent study. Hi, this is Jenny Beck Esme. One of my talks here today was on first trimester vaginal bleeding. And I have three big takeaways for you from my talk. The first is that most of these patients can get some gentle and cautious reassurance when we're discharging them. If you see a live intrauterine pregnancy on your ultrasound after the patient's had some vaginal bleeding, most of those are going to go on to probably be normal pregnancies. 95 to 98% of the time, those pregnancies are going to be carried beyond 20 weeks. So you can let them know that. I think that's great. The second is I think that we can do a better job of taking care of these patients when we don't find a live IUP. I think we need to take very seriously the delivering of the bad news that this might be a failed pregnancy and treat that with the gravity that that deserves. And then last, there's a lot of literature going around the social media spheres about how we may not need to use pelvic exams in the emergency department anymore. We're looking at the utility of whether that's actually something that needs to be done. And I would say at this point, most of those studies are really pretty small with pretty equivocal results. And I think there's other findings on the pelvic exam that are non-obstetrical 
there's other findings on the pelvic exam that are non-obstetrical that we need to do a pelvic exam to even see things like vaginitis, cervicitis, vaginal trauma, polyps, or cervical cancer that I don't think washing away the pelvic exam is quite where we are yet. Hello, this is Patrick Bafuma, and my talk today was on epidural abscesses. The three big takeaways from this particular talk are as follows. Number one, patients with immunocompromised states need to be evaluated or at least considered for the possibility of a deep space infection. And immunocompromised is actually a larger uh, group than you think. It's actually the not just people that are on biologics and your oncologic patients, but also your malnourished patients, as well as people with end-stage anything. So your end-stage liver, end-stage lung, uh, end-stage CHF, or renal patients should all be considered immunocompromised. Additional groups that should be considered for this diagnosis, people who put things where they don't belong, so people who have a history of IV drug use, but additionally, people with any sort of indwelling port, whether it be a catheter, uh, a Foley catheter, whether it be a hemodialysis port, they should also be considered because they're constantly being accessed um, and, and basically you're just waiting for them to seed. Um, obviously, spinal procedures fall into that category as well. And most importantly is the recurrently ill if people have had a prescription for antibiotics within the last month, you really need to be thinking about was this initially missed um, or it, did they have a transient bacteremia that seeded? Uh, additionally, anyone that has had a, a, re a recurrent skin, uh, skin or soft tissue infection or anyone that has recently been staph or strep bacteremic really need to expand your differential, uh, especially if the patient has a new complaint. And just at least think about the idea of a deep space infection for those that cohort of patients. Hi, this is Jamie Hope. My talk today was pregnancy-related emergencies. So the three big takeaways from my talks were, in the case of resuscitative hysterotomy, the most difficult thing about that entire procedure is making the decision to do it in the first place. It needs to be done within four minutes of mom losing vitals and not getting ROSC. Once you've made the decision, the mechanics of it, the bone-to-bone -bone incision, cut the uterus, don't cut the baby, and deliver the baby, that's the easy part. Number two from the talk about postpartum hemorrhage, it's important to recognize that this is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality worldwide and a significant problem here in the United States. So you want to act very quickly, and you're doing multiple things simultaneously, including making sure you identify the source of the bleeding. If it's uterine atony, in 80% of the cases, you're going to do massage, medications, massive transfusion. And of course, if it's from a laceration, you're going to repair that. And then the third talk about resuscitation in pregnancy. Most of the medications are the same as in regular resuscitation, and there's no significant dosing changes. But a few things to keep in mind in addition to your usual resuscitation medications are, was there an iatrogenic cause of it? Was there a local anesthetic systemic toxicity, in which case you need to treat with intralipid, or a code due to hypermagnesemia from treatment of preeclampsia or eclampsia, which would be treated by calcium? Another interesting note are there are a few case reports of amniotic fluid embolism being successfully treated with intralipid, so it's one thing to keep in mind. 
Hi, this is Jenny Beck Esme, and my talk today was on the emergency department care of the lactating patient. I have a couple big takeaways for you. The first is that there's some great resources online to help you figure out whether medications are safe to give to your lactating patient. In general, we need to be avoiding a pump and dump strategy as much as possible so these patients can continue feeding their children in the best way for them. So those big resources are LactMed, which is an online searchable database given to us by the National Institute of Health that you can find really quick information on almost any drug that will let you know whether you can give it to a patient who is nursing. And the second is a phone line called Infant Risk. It's an 800 number that patients can call. You could call it too, but probably this is better for your patients so they can get information on medications they might be taking at home, like over-the-counter things, without consulting their physician. My second big takeaway is that we should be doing a better care of these patients in the emergency department in a holistic sense. So these patients need to be breastfeeding or pumping at least every three to four hours. So it would be a good practice to ask women when you're seeing them, anyone of childbearing age, if they are breastfeeding and help facilitate that process while they're in the ER because many, many patients are there for longer than four hours. And the last thing I covered was just to be familiar with mastitis. And this is the inflammation of the breast tissue, often caused by nipple trauma or from clogged milk ducts during pregnancy and after delivery. And this is very easily treated with some NSAIDs, some warm compresses. But the big thing to do here, in addition to maybe adding antibiotics along the way, is that to know that these mothers need to continue breastfeeding throughout. It's actually part of the treatment because we need to unclog those milk ducts. Why do I love Rebellion? Why do I like Rebellion? And I love Rebellion in EM because... I love Rebellion. And I love Rebellion in emergency medicine because... So one of the things I love about Rebel EM is it's... The reason why I love Rebellion is because it is the greatest collection of my friends who are super smart people who come together and give very, very high-yield talks in a very fun and educational format. It's a very informal, welcoming, collaborative group. And... Nurses teach paramedics, teach docs, and we rinse and repeat. It is such an amazing group of passionate educators who understand adult learners and making sure that we're delivering education in a way that is interesting and memorable. Uh, simply because of the people involved. Uh, conferences are conferences, but it's really the people that make it fantastic. And everyone from Cell all the way down, uh, all the people are what make this fantastic and fun and worth coming to. And, and, and that's what I love about it. So the relaxed and friendly atmosphere where no hierarchies exist. And I love Rebellion in Emergency Medicine because it is a lot of wide variety of topics with high yield information, looking at the current evidence in a way that's going to Im impact your practice tomorrow. Well, as you can tell from today's speakers, day two of Rebellion EM 2019 was one that will be remembered. Thanks so much for letting me guest host today on Rebelcast. And until next time, I'm Andy Little. Thank you.